by taking a commitment, even if you don't achieve that goal, the journey itself is an achievement. Just taking that leap and starting that journey. The things yeah. you will learn along the way about yourself. Uh, that's what I've learned so much. from. I've had a lot more failure than I've had successes, right? Um, I've had a lot more failure. Things where I thought, hey, I can do that, and then I, I couldn't do that. These are amazing learnings for taking forward to the next stage of your life. The journey into outdoors and making myself more available for nature is starting today, and I need something big to encourage me to do that. And, and then I eventually start telling loads more people. That brings pressure on. It's like having the body system for the gym, right? I must deliver because everyone knows now. So you can use the charity or the, you know, telling people. But also it was such a, at that time, that moment, it was a very uh, sensitive time for me in terms of where I was. My mental state was really sensitive. I, I, I kept it very personal and private and I wanted to achieve the lifestyle transformation without telling anyone at the beginning, mm -hmm. just so that, you know, I could slowly build this up. Welcome to Art of Adventuring, the show about explorers and inspiring adventurers and the details behind their incredible journeys. They not only take us through their hardships and highlights, but also let us know what they have learned on these trips that has changed them and their everyday life. Hi, I'm Torben from the World Explorers Collective, and today with me is Isaac Kenyon, a British endurance adventurer and explorer. He rode across oceans, swam across all in the spirit of raising awareness for mental health. And he's doing that not because he just chose a topic to raise awareness about, but because he struggled with mental health himself so much. There were times in his life where he had suicidal thoughts. He was stuck in a job and what we now know were severe burnout, stress and depression symptoms. When he took a walk, he realized that being outside in nature actually helps him And this is where he wants to be. Even though he was passionate about the outdoors and adventures, he never was an adventurer. And so he decided to set big goals and transition into this life of adventure and outdoors. However, that transition wasn't easy. To have big dreams and big goals, it requires, unfortunately, a lot of time to train and also money to train and to deprioritize a job, to deprioritize things that are usually required to make a living. And so he got to experience the whole ups and downs of being an explorer, of training hard, of deprioritizing, and also finding sponsors, something which, especially when you're starting out, is extremely difficult. This is what happened with me. Like, I had a few brands that were, we only deal with people with 10K, and I said, 10K what? Followers. And they say, oh, we want 10K followers. And I said, across all platforms? No, Instagram only. I was like, mm. okay, right. And, you know, <laughs> if someone is, you know, Mr. Looney and has no idea, you would just take him on. And they said, well, we get more exposure. So we only, we're mostly in it for the exposure and not the adventure. I said, well, it's about, about the human element as well. You know, the reason for yeah. doing it and the stories afterwards. Like if you get someone who's going to fail, but they give you great following. So I had a bit of an argument with one of, one of the, the potential sponsors before about this but they yeah. see it so influencing yeah they see it so influencing they think our adventure is about being an influencer and i said no it's not it's not about doing that it's about doing the action and inspiring 
But yeah. you know, you you guys are the vessels as well. You're brand partners. You're part of this journey too. You know, you can share this. It doesn't have to. You know, I don't have to have a million followers. I can have a hundred followers, but I'm working with you, and then you can share it. And but they don't see it that way. They want to get more. That's that's, de- that's definitely go go back in there later when we talk about sponsoring because yeah. I also have my thoughts and yeah. experiences. But first of all. Really, thank you so much for the time. I'm very, very excited about this conversation. I think you have an exciting story to tell on a very personal matter, how you came about adventuring and what it does to you. And so I think really it's so, so important to know a bit of your background that then led you to who you are now and where you are now. Many people are unaware that I'm a geologist. I studied geology at university. I was very curious about, you know, geography and the natural world from a very young age. I, I grew up in a town, an urban city called Luton in, in the UK. And that wasn't really a very safe place to go out and explore. <laughs> It is a bit like inner city London, maybe. So you, ha- you had to have this special trips to, to get out into the outdoors. So nature wasn't an outdoor adventure, wasn't really on my doorstep, if you say it like that. I was more urban when I was, when I was younger. It was only when yeah. I did go to university that when I studied geology, because I was so fascinated with the natural world, the, you know, the places that I didn't really get to explore when I was a kid. I, I was so fascinated with that. So I, I studied a, a course, a ge- you know, geology course um, to get out there and, and see, see this world. But more, more so, I was also interested around natural resources because I was fully aware from a very young age, my family was very good at educating me about saying, you know, We live in a society, right, that's been taking a lot from the planet. They, they told me that from a very young age. You know, we, we have all of these devices, wow. these, these things that come from resources. And I was very fascinated with that as a concept, like what do resources and you know, things from the earth. And so that's where that kind of curiosity came to go into a geology background. And then straight after university, I, I moved on into, into a career. And I, I, I ended up in a sort of an office environment working in as a, as a geoscientist or, you know, supporting in data, data sort of work and things like that within the you know, geology field. And uh, I also had a spell in finance as well because I was interested in you know, getting mm. better at finance. Is that what But you yeah, actually so ex- expected when you started geology or did you have this, maybe it's just a dream? but go out to volcanoes and look at rocks that you realized that your career as a geologist would be then in a lab as a data scientist more than in the field? Yeah, yeah. so I was very much going into geology, you know, to be more in the field. And then as I kind of got into the degree, I found out that actually that's very, very specialist nowadays and there's a lot more technology that is being used to go out into the field, you know, drones and things like that. There are engineers who are more likely to go out in the field than than a geologist nowadays. And most of the time, geologists or geoscientists spend most of their time indoors in offices, environments and things like that. The years have changed. The world has moved very digital. So when I started my journey at 10 years old, getting fascinated with geology and and getting out into the natural world, you know, there wasn't Facebook, there wasn't social media, all this internet, there wasn't all this data as much Mm. as it is right now. And then as I progressed throughout my academic career, the world changed so much, you know, the internet, social media just went boom. And now, you know, now we're talking about AI today, but AI was actually being created at that point as well. And yeah, it's, it's yeah, it's incredibly trans, 
transforming the, you know the way society works on your career and your life the way the things that you envision do change based on what happens in society i mean there is even talk with ai stripping lawyers from jobs and accountants from jobs now and you know it's crazy just the the, the nature of that world but I guess one thing remains, though, throughout all of that has been a bit of a journey and adventure. And I found something there. I found adventure throughout this time. And um, that's what we're on the podcast uh, to talk about as well. I mean, adventure, of course, in a uh, literal sense in you going out <laughs> into adventures. But um, you know, obviously, just a bit back what you said with, uh, with the studying, it just reminded me that uh, I, was, I was in a similar face in my life when I studied and I wanted to, I always told everyone, I don't want to sit in front of the computer. I want to do something with people. And then uh, it didn't really matter what you study. You always end up in front of a computer anyways. <laughs> so it seems uh, to be, you know, back then it was, yeah. And, uh, you know, before 2000, you know, before 2010 starting studying, it was only the IT guys and the, you know, the hardcore engineers who would be in front of the computer. And then by the end of university, just everyone was like, that, that was just whatever you do. You just sit in front of the computer. Even if it's just for well, meetings. It's <laughs> doesn't nuts, matter. Though. We're doing this podcast for a computer right now. We're doing it over a computer. I mean, I would yeah. absolutely love to do this in, in person <laughs> and this will be happening one day. But let's put it on environmental cautiousness rather than anything else that we do this uh, virtually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. We are saving so much carbon footprint by doing it this way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah, you brought us right to the point where you, yeah, you started your career and you already mentioned zooming back to you as a 10-year-old kid, maybe the 10-year-old kid was a little bit disappointed, like what happened to all the rocks, you know, what happened to me being outside. And then, and how was it for you in that, in that office job where you more and more found that it actually really does not make you happy, quite, quite the opposite. It makes you very, very miserable almost to some extent. Yeah. As I followed that, that career path trajectory that was, you know, put in front of me, you know, follow the where everyone else was going sort of thing, right? I started following that. My my mind and my body was not liking it. And the the problems actually started at university. I got very, very academic and I was so much um of of a, of a person that I wasn't before. I transformed at university from a very active, sporty individual mm. playing, you know, I used to play a lot of sports, not outside in the city as much, but like in facilities where it was safer. So I used to swim a lot in the swimming pool and things when i went to university it was all about you know screens productivity getting things done and it you know it was very much a world like it would be in 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 most office jobs now where you just have deadlines and most of the work is on the pc i was disconnected from nature and i had a mental health crisis mm. really bad mental health crisis you know suicidal ideation panic disorder wow. and the only the only way i actually realized i had a, a problem was when it came out and manifested physically. So I wasn't quite sure of my mental health struggles. I wasn't taught mental health when I was at school and you know things like this. Mm. It was not something that was spoken about. It is now to this. It's really spoken about a lot now. But I was getting all these like heart pains. I was thinking, what is this? Is it a heart attack? Like at the time, you know, I was scared. <laughs> it was panic disorder. Yeah. It was heightened cortisol, and it was causing a lot of uh, palpitations. And that was from anxiety. And it was crazy that this was going on. And I found that the anxiety and the panic and the mental health struggles were worse the longer I was indoors and the more I spent on screens. 
when I pulled myself away and got outdoors, all of these worries, these things, these issues, these physical manifestations of how it all started to disappear. So there was a realization that the world that I was living in, that, you know, what society was paving away for me in terms of career mm. wasn't fulfilling for my mind and body. I was having consequences out of this. So I, I had to rediscover the outdoors again. And, and, and now I, I, I used adventure as my vessel, but we'll talk about that in a bit. Yeah, because I think I really would like to stay a bit with your mental state because it's very fascinating and shocking at the same time that you say it wasn't really until my, my body physically started to tell me, okay, you are now going downhill, even though it is a mental cause. And I think it almost sounds like when you think of a smoker who only realizes that they are addicted or that lung. something is harmful once the doctor tells you your, your lung is gone and you have lung cancer like this is so the last resort we, we should be able to detect these things way before your body is almost giving in yeah my world was very different to the world now is around mental health you know there were still discussions back then of your you know you're meant to turn up on time oh you're mm. just having a bad day oh you know just push through and you'll get that deadline over the line and we just need this right now and mm. it was very much like no one to talk to no one understood and i was thinking i had a heart condition and when i got checked out i went to a gp they said okay if, if you feel like you've got a heart condition you know you should be in the ambulance by now it's clearly not a heart condition and i said well you're right yeah so what is this And they say, well, it sounds to me that you've got some, you know, a disorder or something, a mental health issue. I said, really? So then that's where the journey of realizing came through. And I started educating myself around mental health. And I realized, oh, do you know what? If I knew what that was from before, I wouldn't have been so worried. I also would have made more an effort to prevent this from happening. The doctor was saying to me at that point as well, he was saying, how much time do you spend outside? Do you spend a lot of time with your family and friends? What do you eat? And mm. I was listening, and I was listening like I drank loads of coffee and caffeine so I could stay up and be more productive. I was sleeping less because obviously I wasn't seeing sleep as, I, I, I saw sleep as a hindrance to get my work done. I wasn't seeing friends and family because work came first. Mm. I wasn't getting outdoors because work came first. I wasn't eating very well or cooking because work came first. So I'd had takeaways, quicker, convenience. Yeah. Yeah. And I realized what was going on. I was following suit and, uh, you know, There was other people doing this, right? I wasn't doing this on my own. I was around an environment like this. And yeah. it was it's, it's very much, if you go in the city of London, you still see it to this day. People are always taking shortcuts and doing convenient things, but there is a cost to that. Absolutely. What I like in today's world, and I think maybe we still need to explore that down the line a few years more but some of that is these gadget and wearables that they have that monitor your heart rate that monitor your all these kinds of metrics like heart rate variability and uh, stress level mm -hmm. even it's i know it doesn't replace a doctor but it just picks up on these body signals i have a feeling at least a bit before it reaches this full escalation state What's your view on that? Do you have experience? Do you use any of these smartwatches or, or rings or whatnot is out there? Or is it like, no, that's not really what I'm in for? Yeah, I think, well, to an extent, it's from an athlete perspective, sometimes they can be a bit misleading because athletes have slightly different heart rates and things like that. So it can be seen as, oh, something's up sort of thing. Yeah. But it's actually, you know, just 
an athlete's perspective and i think people listening to this a lot of them might be athletes or people who've done adventures and think you know they might have a very fit background these are good apps but they're more for like the baseline of the most of the people mm. i think there are certain categories that it doesn't fit i've i've been wearing the, the the watch before you know the apple watch that does measures these metrics and measures sleep and things like that and i think they are can be effective in building habits so you know measuring your sleep and understanding you know what what types of sleep are working for you you know yeah. The days where you're working late and you're on your computer too late, you're not sleeping properly. And then you try to go to sleep because you've worked on your PC till like 11 p.m. Mm. And then you're actually still wired until 1 a.m. And then you're waking up at 7 a.m. and you're getting six hours sleep. And it's just building. It, it helps reinforce that sort of notion of your habits and need work or something like this. That's how I see them. Absolutely. So they're like a useful, to useful tool, I think. I'm really prone to this gamification of these watches on these apps so i almost, almost feel guilty if again i'm below some kind of metric or threshold and my score is too low some in, in, in that sense at, at least i'm part of the game and trying to okay well my sleep score was too low or that heart rate was too high so tomorrow i'll fix it at least yeah i, I think i think it might like get dangerous with if they start doing happiness index or oh, you're not happy enough today I think oh, that yeah. would become an issue, wouldn't it? Yeah, <laughs> that's a, yeah that would be a real that's problem. That's the next level, you know. You have a great day yeah. and then they tell you, well, you're not happy. Like, oh, okay, I thought I was doing fine. but you know. It's true. It also has the, the reverse effect that you feel great and then you look at some metric and it says you actually have a really, really, you know, bad yeah. bad score and this and that. And then it influences you. Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. I, yeah. I take it, you know, how do you feel inside first? And if that measures... Or yeah. matches with the app, I think is is a good one. But yeah, so technology is has been useful, and um, but also for me, it's been quite a hindrance. But mm. that's because of my mental health issues that I developed from this sort of way of living. Yeah, exactly. But you know, I found adventure, I found outdoor, you know, exercise and things like that. That's really transformed my life. I mean, nature has saved my life. I I say that all the time. Mm. I say nature saved me. You know, it wasn't a doctor. It wasn't prescriptions. I mean, the doctor said you had an issue. But the doc doctor didn't really like create a lifestyle change for me. I think when I started falling back in love with nature, which I was when I was like 10 years old, you know, when we were talking about or wanted to study geology, when I went back to that, that way of thinking, getting outdoors again, life changed for the better. And since then, you know, it's been amazing. I've had hardly any moments of despair. And if, if they do, mm -hmm. it's probably natural. Someone's passed away, not like, you know, something to do with my lifestyle. Right. So it's, it's, yeah. uh, it's a lot better now. And actually, that that path to the cure, it's it started out with you just going on very simple and basic walks. So it, like you didn't jump headfirst into the biggest adventure you could possibly find. But like, how yeah. was that process of prioritizing nature a little bit over where you are now, which is yeah, you know, an adventure? It was that realization, you know, I said earlier where I felt my mind was clear. I could I could think. I could take in the the world around me. Those moments only came when I was walking through this woodland on campus at university. So I'd always go through and I was, I purposely would make it an effort sometimes to go into that woodland mm. because I knew it was doing me good, but I didn't know why, but I, I felt, I felt great just being mm. there, being in there. And I started realizing more and more on every single walk, how much I enjoyed this moment to the point where it was almost a highlight of my day every day. I was like, I'm looking forward to this one bit of walk. That's mm. how bad 
it got to you know wow. at that time it was just literally a short 15 minute walk for a woodland was my best thing of the day and people think wow that's pretty extreme but that's how it was and i had a very low day and i just walked and walked and walked um through a friend's guidance he said you love this doing this walk why don't you just just go on a walk all day put everything down you know close everything down just go and you know this is him saying go on an adventure mm. and he just says close everything get rid of all your laptops whatever just walk until your mind gets clear i walked for seven hours i think it was the longest walk of my life in one go uh, at that point i've done a lot longer since but I walked through fields, forests, along rivers, past lakes. It was amazing. And as I went through there, it was starting to realize, like, I don't want this life anymore. The, the thing that I was doing, the mm. way I was living, I want something different. So I made a vow, you know, to myself, you know, I'm going to get in, in, in the outdoors more. I'm going to do more things that get me in this state of happiness, this flow. I, I was enjoying this you know, this, this process of, of, mm. of, of the walk. I've really enjoyed it. So I wanted more of that. And then I also had a bond, you know, this moment where I was like, this, this thing, nature, it's, it's, not, it's not asking for anything from me. It's just giving. It's so generous. Mm. And it's actually giving me some sort of life like hope. I was getting a lot of hope and inspiration from it. So, I, you know, what do you do at that point? It's like, I feel like I'm in forever debt to you, but not a human you know the earth right i feel in debt mm. so i made a vow also to protect protect it because it does that for me and the more and more experiments i i went you know these adventures i i made were things to encourage me to spend a lot of time in the outdoors how did you go about so, that because yeah i needed something yeah because i think it's so hard to create a promise and create a new path to your new life and i'm changing my habits and then people, it takes a week or two, and then they fall back into the same old routine. How did you go about to say, okay, I want to be more nature. This is a transformative moment. Like, what kind of commitments did you make at the very get-go to say, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm following through this, and I will prioritize the outdoors or nature? I needed some uh, audacious goals, some, some sort of goal. I was racking my brain, you know, I was sitting here thinking, what, what could I do to do this so I could do you know, 10 minutes in nature every day? But I felt I was doing that already. And I was like, well, then sometimes I miss my time outdoors. Sometimes I will not go outdoors. Sometimes I'll just not turn up because of work. I need something that makes me feel like there's a priority here. Mm. You know, there's a big priority, a big deal, and this big thing. And so I need something big. I need something big. I need to put something in a diary that's really big that I need to train for. Or I need to get outdoors for. I need something there that's like, wow, that's huge. You know, if I don't do this regularly, if I don't commit consistently, I will not meet it. Mm. And then from that sort of logic, I, I created my first adventure. You know, put it in a diary. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to achieve this thing. At the time, it was an English Channel swim. I'm going to achieve that. And the reason why I chose English Channel swim is because I was already a swimmer. I've done swimming before. But this and meant that means I could combine my... The crossing the english channel from dover to calais yeah that's it yeah that's the route and it's really great because you can essentially in my in my case combine my swimming skills with outdoor activity so i took my swimming outside um, which i'd never done before it was always in a pool and it was a nice comfortable step for me and i encourage people you know 
if you do take an audacious goal, make sure you've got some form of you know, comfort there so it does feel a bit more achievable. I mean, you can't. some people do go wild and choose something completely out there and have no idea what they've done. Mm. And they're starting something from complete scratch. It's quite difficult to do that if you've not done that before in the first time. So there's, you know, this you can make the steps a bit easier, right? And that for me was my easy step. I I know this sport. I'm going to take it outside and take it to a, a quite a extreme level. But what it's going to do is for me to be able to get in into that state where I'm fit enough and I'm also tuned with cold water swimming. I need to immerse myself in cold water outside. I need to do the action. I need to train and do this. I have to regularly get outdoors and do that. And then that means. I have to block that out of my diary. I have to have those special sessions. I have to make this a priority. And then suddenly you realize that, you know, my lifestyle has changed. It's outdoors is now a priority. Wow. Well, first, first of all, the goal is huge. <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm still trying to digest that. This was the first thing you could come up with. Okay. What should I do across the English channel? For me, that's a such a huge such a huge undertaking and obviously you say you were a swimmer but anyone who has ever swum in a lake or in the open ocean it it's completely different from swimming your lanes in a pool and that's really fascinating that you really went to such a length what was the yeah. timing between well, your decision and like did you have a time where you said okay i want to do this by day x one year one year i gave myself one year i said by well, one year i'm gonna get there i'm gonna be ready for it And I needed something big because I needed big change. I was like, I need to change this, this life massively. Mm. And I need something that really excites me as well. And it ticks a lot of boxes. And, you know, you need to do sports and now exercise. It's important to do exercise for your maintaining your body. The doctor let me know that. Um, and I was like, okay, so I'm just, I'm going to do some combining with sports. I need to get some of these, you know, serotonin, these happy brain chemicals mm. these things that i was depleted in you know when you're out indoors all, all the time you're depleted in serotonin you're hardly outside you're never getting any of that natural sunlight and you're also not getting much oxytocin or endorphins because you're not really moving around you're very stagnant yeah. you're staying there it's it's yeah it's not very good for you so trying to you know reverse that and i thought you know doing this challenge is going to reverse that it did and then you know obviously i came off the end of that challenge and i think there's a lot of people adventurers who would resonate with this what do you do next what's next everyone has that sort of feeling of buzz and for me it was a lifeline what is next mm. i have to do something next because you know i'm using these outdoor challenges or these outdoor experiences as my lifeline of building a lifestyle that i can one you know find balance in because mm. i was off balance before that right with my mental health state so Straight off the English Channel, I well, even during the training of the English Channel, I was planning the next thing, making sure that I had some sort of goal that I could aspire yeah. to. And it, it, it's really exciting sometimes to have an audacious goal because it really makes, makes you search within to find what's needed to achieve that goal. And I think sometimes if, if it's too easy, you won't do the work to find out what you truly want. So if it's a really easy, obtainable thing that you can do in the next week, you probably won't put too much effort into it. Yeah, exactly. And it won't be a lifestyle change. It will just be a one-off. But if you make it so audacious and big that it almost, you have to transform your lifestyle for it, then it becomes really powerful. 
that's a, I think that's a really cool statement. And it reminds me a little bit of people who want to run a marathon. It is definitely a very hard thing to do. I've never done it. I never plan on doing it. But at the same time, it's probably something that is not an entire lifestyle change in the long term. But in the area of you need to train a couple times a week, you need to really prioritize that because if you come from not being a runner at all, then running a marathon is actually quite the quite the step up. And if you are already a bit of a runner, then you might go to these ultra runs where you really push yourself to the limit and where you say, okay, I really need kind of half a year, a year to train for that. Otherwise I will fail. So it's, I can really see how this is a huge commitment that will then lead to a transformation. Yeah. And also by taking a commitment, even if you don't achieve that goal, the journey itself is an achievement. Just taking that leap and starting that journey. The things yeah. you will learn along the way about yourself, uh, like that's what I've learned so much from, you know, I've had a lot more failure than I've had successes, right? And um, I've had a lot more failure of things where I thought, hey, I can do that. And then I, I couldn't do that. Mm. These are amazing learnings for, for, for taking forwards to the next stage of your, of your life. And I think just making that start and, uh, you know, that was that walk I did where I had that realization was like, okay, I'm making this start today. Mm. The journey into outdoors and making myself more available for for nature is starting today and i need something big to encourage me to do that did you tell people about your goal i did towards like closing stages so it was quite a personal thing up until around i would say four months in and then there was some like fundraising as well as part of it mm -hmm. uh, which helped one person was like oh it's amazing what you're doing like let's get some more money behind this and do fundraising and stuff and and then i eventually started telling loads more people that brings pressure on it's like having the body system for the gym right it's exactly you know i must deliver because everyone knows now i must turn up to the gym at 7 a.m because you know ben messaged me he's going to be there so i don't want to let ben down we've um, all been there yeah yeah so you can use the the charity or the you know telling people that you're doing that as a way of of doing it but also i think because it was such a at that time that moment it was a very uh sensitive time for me in terms of where i was my mental state was really sensitive i i, I kept it very personal and private mm. and i wanted to achieve the lifestyle transformation without telling anyone at the beginning mm. just so that you know i could slowly build this up um and then afterwards i told people uh you know about what i was doing and why and were you still yeah. working in your job at that time? And um, well, this was at university. So the first challenge was at university. And then I went into my, in, into my day job afterwards and yeah, I had other adventures, but by that point I kind of understood what I needed. Okay. Okay. And then maybe then just quickly that circle back that, so when you came out of university, you were, you were in that adventure mindset and then, and then you went. Then you went into the data science, geology job, and then yeah. did that trigger again and stress you out again? Or how yeah. much could you then actually focus on? I can feel that you were probably torn between, okay, where's the next adventure? And at the same time, okay, I now got this, I now got this job that you try to make two things work or how did this, yeah. how does this work out? Yeah, the, the corporate world, it was very challenging because not only was there less flexibility at university is a bit more flexibility as, as anyone who's been to university mm. or college or whatever you can kind of 
have a bit more of an easier timetable. When you go into sort of the, the working world, it's very rigid. You're expected to be there at a certain time, nine, usually 9am and five, right? And you know, things have changed a lot since pandemic as well. Like there's a bit more flexibility nowadays, but most corporate jobs were like that. And then there's the commuting part of it as well, which is very rigid because you need to you know, get there on time. So actually your day is really rigid really rigid so when i was at university it was a bit more fluid i could kind of i could kind of do some training a bit more during the day i couldn't mm. do that as much when i was in a corporate job it was weekends or evenings or very early in the mornings it was yeah. really hard to do anything at lunch because you know people trying to book in your lunch for meetings and work you know people trying to squeeze your lunch because you know they they've they're trying to get their their work done and I found that that was a really hard balance. I was doing a lot of the adventuring in, in the evenings and I was doing it in the mornings and I was doing it in, in the weekends and it was so hard to balance because it was like, I guess, you know, not doing the adventures when it's fun, uh, middle of the night, you know, when it's dark. Mm -hmm. It's not as great as having to be able to run around the hills and stuff in the daylight where you can see where you are. So, yeah, things were quite frictiony. So I had to make a change again around my working lifestyle. So I, I did make a, make a step again. So I moved away from corporate world because of this friction. Hmm. I found I couldn't, I couldn't fulfill the amount of outdoor time that I wanted on a day-to-day -day basis in that current setup of lifestyle. Um, so I chose, I guess, a more digital company where there's more remote working, flexibility, better packages for that um one that kind of focused a bit more around well-being and stuff like mm. this and now i'm happy with that company um but then i wasn't so yeah it's pretty tricky for those in corporate world it's quite tricky to to get into the outdoors it's possible it is possible but mm. it's, it is harder but i think it's now very important for everyone to to also also hear, and we will talk about this now a little bit, that you have a day job in that sense. Uh, you are you employed at a company, and you're still an adventurer on the side. And I think that is also maybe we move a little bit into this whole sponsoring aspect that we briefly touched upon, yeah. because I think the mindset and the general thought is that if you say you are an adventurer and also like you an endurance adventurer, where things take usually more than just a couple of hours or, or, or even days, people always assume you have massive sponsoring and you have the biggest brands backing you and you live this flamboyant lifestyle and you're this great sportsman. But in the end, what a lot of people do mostly is save up and then use, use their holidays between their corporate jobs. How is that for you? Is, is that an accurate description of how you do that as well? That it is your job and adventure is, is really your passion, but it, it is that job that fuels that passion? Yes. So there, there was a very interesting conversation I had with myself once where do I want to do this full time as a job adventuring? And, you know, I do keynote speaking and all mm. sorts of stuff out of the adventures and I have lots of brand partners and sponsors and things like that. Do I want to do this full time? And there came a, a view where I felt if I relied upon this for my livelihood, it becomes not fun anymore. It becomes not exciting anymore. It becomes, you know, a job like any other job. So mm -hmm. I wanted to keep it in the spirit of adventure free. 
where there's no strings attached. And that that's kind of what I've done. So I've I've kept it on the side. You know, there has been opportunities where I could probably go full time into this. And I have really thought about doing it full time a few times, but then it's the realization that if I make this a full time thing, I don't know if I will enjoy it as much as I think I will. And the more people I've spoken to who've turned passions into jobs have told me that actually it isn't as fun as it used to be because they're having to do all this other stuff like CEO or you know accountancy and tax returns and all these other things that come alongside it that aren't as necessary as fun anymore. But there is a nest, you know, there is ways you can do it without without that, which is build a business, and that that's something that you can do. I think that can pr- protect you, so you can enjoy the adventures without having to do the work that comes sometimes alongside, you know, running running a company, so it's viable financially. That can be, you know, you can turn that into a business, and that's something I'm doing at the moment. And I know there's quite a lot of other adventurers who are doing the same or have done the same. And it works, but it's a longer process because you have to be an entrepreneur as well. Mm. So, you know, there's a bit, it's a bit of a balance. So if you just love getting outdoors, but you don't like number crunching, you don't like, you know, doing project management and things like this, it's going to be a harder ask. You've got to kind of, I, I would say you'd have to learn that or, or, or co-found with someone. Yeah, I think that's probably then the third rule that I haven't really thought about so much. But with the first one, obviously being adventurous, what you do in your free time and you prioritize it, but you earn a living from a day job or even maybe then a part-time job. And there's, the second one would be what maybe a lot of people have in mind that you go out and seek sponsors, which is an absolutely terrible process. I don't, I haven't, I've never met anyone who likes um finding sponsors <laughs> maybe you're different well, yeah because you're you're literally selling yourself right yeah you're selling the the adventure is this thing you're going on mm. for your fun and your enjoyment and then you're gonna come back with something to give back to someone who's given you money perhaps and you have that conversation it's a hard conversation to have it's how it's, is that for it, you how how, how uh, are you, especially in the beginning like you know of course you now have you now have a few few thousand and i think you, you just broke the magical ten thousand mark on on instagram for example but how was it for you especially in the beginning when you were you know less less famous oh god i i say at the beginning you know i wouldn't say i'm famous but i i would say at the beginning it was very hard because it was being a salesman for a product that you haven't made yet hmm. so it's very much like starting up as an entrepreneur hmm the same process. So I've already, I've started a business and I feel my adventures pitching to sponsors is very similar to pitching to investors or clients. All very similar things. And if you are not happy, if you struggle with rejection, it's a very hard process. If you learn from rejection, it's a very great process. So I say that in two different When I learned how to take rejection well, and to find out why I got rejected, I was able to get better at sponsorship. Mm. And then the process became easier and easier and easier. If you take away a rejection and you just say, they rejected me, I'm awful, my adventure sucks, no one cares about my adventure, it gets really hard. So I had to take every single rejection and almost beg them to say, what was it or how, 
how did you come to this conclusion that you wouldn't support my adventure? What was it? They learn, they learn, they learn, they tell you things and eventually you get the picture. But mo most of the time now, you know, my, my sponsorship is quite easy. It is easier because you, I have a brand, of course, mm. and people know of me and I've got success records. But there are ways you can artificially make that happen for you. You can create your own success records with smaller, smaller things and build up. So, you know, I don't go into sponsorship the same way as I, I used to. If I was to give myself advice from the, you know, going back in time to the beginning would be like, send as many proposals as you possibly can and learn absolutely everything you possibly can from every single rejection that you get and just think of rejection as actually a success because the more you get rejected and find out why the better you will be for the next time and it's a bit like i find with adventures and sport and training every single hill can be bigger right and you might struggle on the first hill and you have the ambition of doing everest like every hill you go on you will learn something new and you go up mm. it again you get stronger you go up it again you'll get stronger eventually you'll be able to do everest it takes a long time but I, that's the same thing with sponsorship it's just like a journey and if you see it that way it's less daunting and i think less uh sad <laughs> when you get that rejection letter <laughs> because you will get a lot of those yeah how, you how did you actually how did you go about of course asking for asking for the feedback but How hard was it for you to get like useful, actually tangible feedback? And what were some of those comments that companies gave oh. you then where you learned from? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the best thing I always say is that think of that as a job interview as well. So when you're trying to get feedback from your job interview, what did I do badly like that mm. I could improve upon? I would, you know, usually uh, rejection comes from an email, right? Or, or a letter potentially you might get a phone call if you get a phone call that's absolutely best thing ever and people are like what is he on about rejection from a phone call but i love it because you can ask questions then you can say mm. so what was it specifically about the pitch that you know didn't go well was there an area that you thought you know was a bit too dangerous as an, an adventure you know did you feel like there's too much risk in this where was this risk area do you did you not actually have budget and um, or didn't have enough budget for this You know, sometimes it might be um, a rejection and then suddenly you start talking to them and you ask these questions and you actually find out that they can give you money, but not the money you asked for at the beginning. Yeah. So you might have asked for 3000 pounds. They rejected you. Then you go back on the feedback and you find out they'll give you a thousand. So it's worth reaching out again to, you know, to, to, to get that, um, that feedback. And I think most of the rejections often are the way you pitch. So the way you position yourself. So if you're going to go to a sponsor and you're going to ask them for some money, you better will know what they want. So you've got to deliver something in return. They're not going to just mm. give you free money. Like a brand doesn't do that. Um, it doesn't, you know, that, they, they, that's hard earned money from their perspective that they're giving to you. They want some sort of impact or return. And when I say return, return doesn't have to be, you know, some sort of financial return like it would be an investment. It mm. could be uh, an impact that you make. Say you go and do this incredible adventure and you raise X amount of money for charity or it's um, political advocacy for a new policy change that you've been able to inspire through your adventure or, you know, you've 
during your adventure, you uh, were involved in helping raise money for clean water in a certain location, and all these people now have clean water. Mm. This is impact, right? Um, and that can be financially measurable as well. And you've got to, uh, I always say to anyone looking at sponsorship is, you know, the biggest rejection is always you haven't looked at that company and what they care about. Mm. So if you're going to go to a business and you, you, you've got to be hitting their needs. So it's, it's not about your needs, it's about their needs as well. Absolutely. And it's so, I think a lot of people trying to look for sponsorship or, or financing in any ways will have this urge of copy paste. They, I have this great pitch deck, this great email, and now, you know, let's fire this one out. You might be lucky with that shotgun method and you have such a great email, but as you said, you probably increase your likelihood if you, even if it's just a few words that you tweak here and there, where you say, okay, I know they're really onto, we used your example of access to water, so I will put that in the focus. Or they're very about the CO2 footprint or sustainability or yeah. workers' rights or anything like that that yeah. they like to that they like to put out. But yeah, and, and I, I always uh, say as well that emails are great, but meetings are better. And if you can get them in a meeting, you don't have to send a massive email to them. You can send you know something that's super punchy three or four lines and say, can we have a chat about this? Mm. And then you can save all that great information for the chat. You can start pulling out the thing. As you did chat with them, you understand their needs better as well. You yeah. can start pulling out some of these parts of your campaign or project or your adventure that can touch on those points. And then it becomes a bit easier. Sometimes if you, I, I found I, I had a lot of rejection letters at the beginning because I poured out my heart and everything, like the mm. whole project on an email and I had all these links to pitch decks and all this stuff I was sending out. And it was just overwhelming, one, for someone to read. Two, yeah. it was very much like I was anticipating their needs before them telling me. And that can be effective if you really know what they want. But if you don't really, really know what they want, you might come across as a bit cocky or, you know, un unassuming or unaware. And it, it makes you look a bit, you know, unprofessional. So, yeah, I was short emails even linkedin messages find people on linkedin or yeah, if you can just get them in the room with you that's the best yeah. place yeah get them in the room and then they also hear your passion about what you're doing and it becomes yeah, more yeah. of an emotional you're selling yourself it's people to people it you know you're not really selling a product or such you're you're selling yourself as a as a spokesperson or someone who could represent that brand in some way as well I think that's incredible advice to to anyone now looking for sponsors, but it all it has to be said. It's still a tough process and uphill battle. And obviously, not that it's impossible, but even once you have sponsors, you know, there are some commitments that, that come along yeah. with it and that also need to be honored, obviously. Oh, you completely agree with that. Once you do have your sponsor on board, you know, they're your baby. You gotta you gotta take care of that sponsor because, you know, if you wanna do more adventures or you know, you want to be seen having done something great. Your sponsor is the first person who's going to celebrate you. And they're also the first person who's going to recommend you for the next ones. Mm. So you treat them really good. And one, they might, you know, choose to give you more next time and you might get another adventure or they might recommend you to their buddy partners. And suddenly you're doing more adventures. So you've got to, you know, work with them as they are like family or such. Yeah, it's it's a very personal thing. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, this other this other big uh, tip on the uh, rejection, the thing that I always get rejected from as well. When I was when I was starting out, 
this was the the biggest thing I ever got rejected from was saying that I was going to do something like a world record without having like really thought about the world record and the risk that is required in that world record and to- and understanding the risk. So there were certain world records I s- made statements of which were very out there and they said, well, what happens if this happens to you? And I had no answers. I had you no answers. Examples? Just yeah, like what happened? Yeah, so I was like, I, I want to uh, break the world record to to row across the Atlantic Ocean. This was one of them, and it was very much like, okay, so what happens if your you know, your power goes down? Like, what if happens if this? What if happens that? And then we've told everyone that you're going to break the world record, and you don't. How that's going to look terrible for us on a PR standpoint. What happens if you die? That's going to look awful. And I didn't really think about these things. I didn't think about the PR, you know, the public relations of that company or that sponsor. Hmm. The what if scenarios. I didn't have answers for that. So before approaching anyone, think about all the things that could go wrong. And what would you do to make them right? And how would you reassure, you know, your mum or dad as well? Because the sponsors are going to ask similar questions. You know, what happens if this happens? What happens if that happens? And yeah. I made a massive mistake of just assuming that I was just going to, yeah, we're going to break the world record. It's going to be great. And this is going to happen. This is going to happen. And they said, well, what, what if there was a problem? And then as soon as they said that, I was a bit stumbling my words. It looked awful. I didn't get that sponsor. And I, 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 sh- I sh- assure you, next time, I will always have that answer. And I do now for everything I do. I think of all the risks. It just reminded me because you said uh, convincing your, your parents there's a theory in, in the startup, in the business world, when you do product testing, it's called the mom test. So it, <laughs> yeah, the, the idea is that you play, explain something to your mom and she gets it. That she's like, oh, wow, you build a new product, a new whatever company, and you manage to explain the purpose and the use of that product to your mom. And if she gets it, then you're probably on the right path. And it just reminds me of that a little bit. If you are able to explain all the risk and what you do, in an adventure to your mom and your mom says, okay, that sounds good. You have my blessing on going. Then you probably considered enough because yeah, yeah parents are usually the ones who have, who like it the least. <laughs> yeah, they the do. The kids go, go, go on these adventures. They are, they are surprisingly unhappy about that. Yeah. I mean, adventures come with risk, massive risk sometimes, like depending mm. on the adventure you do, but they can come with huge risks, life threatening risk. Mm. So, you know, it's, very important that you work on the risk. Um, and that was a massive, massive thing I learned from rejections as well. Yeah. And not only for sponsors, but it definitely also helps your relationship with your parents if they, if they <laughs> trust your judgment, you know, down, down, down the line. But I mean, now you, you have now a few sponsors, obviously, and as you said, treat them very well. And at the same time, you are now also working a little bit more on, yeah, on, on, on your own company, on your own setup. And obviously your story is, is a fundamental part of that. So nature as being a mental health driver. And at the same time, you mentioned that in the very beginning also, and now we're going back to parents that your parents were so careful in teaching you need to give back to earth and you need to be careful about earth. So now it's also sort of this ecotourism or eco-adventures that play a significant role in your life. Yeah, totally. If you were saved by someone, you would want to do something to help them, right? They said, could you help me out? 
you probably would if they saved your life. And that's how I felt with nature at that point where I had a difficult crisis. But I also, from a young age, was also taught, as you say, you know, nature is important. We should give back to nature. Then, you know, this is something that's always been in the mindset. Hmm. So eco-adventures is, you know, this this thing that I thought would be my first step of sustainability leadership, something that, you know, I could really give back to nature, but through something I'm good at. And uh, and the re- the way I, ca- I came about it was that I, I saw the climate crisis. I mean, we can all see the climate crisis. It's it's there for everyone to see. You know, every every day there's a news piece of, of climate issues and it's it's awful. And I've been to lots of different locations around the world as part of the adventures and seen firsthand, you know, devastating wildfires and things like this which just is horrible to see mm. a real cruel injustice on the planet at the moment and you know when i started thinking of the climate crisis like wow this is colossal this problem is massive like it's really overwhelming for one person to comprehend how to solve this thing mm. how can we how can we solve this so i tried to do and break it down into a very small thing what can i do from an individual perspective to make a difference and I saw it as if every individual looked at themselves as an expert in something and made that as you know environmentally friendly or sustainable as possible as they possibly could, we can all be these like interconnecting tributaries, these like ri- river channels that flow into like a, a, a large river. And then that is that big change that we need mm. to solve the climate crisis. So I looked in with myself, I was like, Okay, I do outdoor sports. I'm good at this thing now. I, I've got a few world records. I've done a lot of adventures and people are really inspired by this stuff. So what can I do in my realm that can make a make an impact in this issue? Mm. And I thought, I'm going to redefine adventure. I'm going to completely and do it again. Um, what, what we know as adventure, I'm going to ca- call it something different. And I'm going to and I'm not just going to redefine it as a word. I'm going to do an action that, you know, I'm going to start doing adventures in this way. We call it eco adventure, which is very much in the spirit of climate, you know, climate protection. Mm. And eco adventure is about combining adventure with that environmental responsibility and doing something or climate action with it. So it's trying to make the 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 you know, whole picture of doing adventures far more sustainable. Mm. So you go out and you play around in the outdoors, and it's really great for you as an adventurer. You're having fun, you like cycling this, climbing Everest, that. You know, this is all fun, but there's a, a cost to it on the planet still. You know, that flight over to base camp and leaving all your plastic and rubbish up in base camp or Everest, you know, that that's an environmental cost to the planet. What if we were doing things differently? What if we could do, you know, adventures a bit closer to home? What if we could take our rubbish back with us? What if we could regenerate the lands that we go to, mm. you know, Often, you know, mountain bikers, I'm not p- p- picking out any adventurer here. I'm just, you know, reeling up different examples. But like mountain bikers are tearing up, you know, the forests with their trails. Mm. Could they do some like regeneration in the areas that aren't being torn up by the trails? Because, you know, those those are like biodiversity gateways and stuff. And if you're destroying some of the bushes and all these things that are, you know, being grown there, you're damaging the environment in some way. Mm. So it's about one you know, recognizing there's environmental responsibility with the outdoors. But two, like, what can you do climate action to regenerate it as well? Because at the end of the day, we all want to continue playing in, in, in nature. Yeah. As adventurers, it's our, it's our playground, right? It's fun. And it'd be so sad to see it all disappear because of human actions. And if we can just be a bit more regenerative and take, I think that would make the world different. So 
I, I pioneered this concept. I, I did my first eco adventure two, three years ago now. It was called Pedal for Parks. It was a campaign. And, and yeah, it's a lot of people are doing these eco adventures since. I've seen lots of people coming up with all these ideas where they can combine climate action like tree planting or, mm. or, or discussions with environmental climate solution experts or uh, urban farming and things like this. You know, there's a lot of combination. Uh, of adventure with that i'm seeing now since 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 doing this myself and i think that's really great it's, it feels like it's inspired quite a few people i wouldn't say you know everyone has looked at my thing and thought i'll do that but i think it gives people ideas and that's yeah. what i wanted out of it as well to kind of create a ripple effect of change and that is now your adventure style or do you also plan these adventures or help people planning them or start initiatives how do yeah. you engage with that yeah so the idea and the concept is one to everyone else to start getting involved in doing it so i started a special purpose company a community interest company it's all about giving back to the community the environment it's called climate explorers cic i co-founded it with a, a friend of mine and it's all about making eco adventures accessible to everyone and teaching them the concept and getting involved in doing it themselves. Mm. It's quite complicated because especially in the UK, you know, land is owned by people and getting involved in volunteering is not easy. So we're, we're trying to sort of bridge that gap of adventures and doing all of these eco project works mm. together. And people come on these experiences with us. They're, they're launching next year, actually, the first ones. And people come on the experiences and what they do is they will be able to reconnect with nature like I did when I did my walk understand yeah. why we should protect it because they'll obviously enjoy it hopefully and they will love the adventure side of things so they might want to do more of this and they also get hands-on with the projects so they know like what they could do in their local area mm. you know, these are things that you actions you can take and then they come home thinking like wow i'm reinvigorated and also can do something for the planet which is cool absolutely and i think it's such a relevant topic And one, I think one of the biggest discussion points is especially around climbing and about high altitude climbing the Himalayas where, and I still struggle with what's my view is on the one hand side, I'm fascinated and I think everyone should be allowed to climb these mountains and everyone should have a right to go to base camp and go to the top of, of Everest. And at the same time, the marginal costs of each person that go there each not only the flights, but as you said, the trash and the infrastructure and all of these things, they, it's, it's quite expensive and it's quite the toll on expensive in the sense of expensive for nature and for the environment of being there. So I'm, I'm also very curious if some of these systems that you've just talked about, bring your trash home or planting trees, if they become maybe a bit more mandatory in the future, especially for large expeditions that government grants or government um, permits are not giving out unless it, it, it just could be a way that that you protect especially these highly vulnerable areas and but it could also very well be in in britain or in the alps in in europe there, there's one thing i remember one one trip i did about a year back in ecuador where we did a couple of days hike in the national park and you had to deposit 20 dollars each And you only got the money back if you showed a trash can, like another trash can, a trash bag. Because they knew that you're on a hike for like three days and you will produce trash and we will, they will not give you the money back unless you brought a full trash bag. <laughs> Because it's very simple. Fantastic. And, you know, and you, 
it wasn't a really busy track, but the few people that you saw, they all had their trash bags. And in the end, at the entry, people handed back their trash and got the money back. And it was just thinking, surprisingly simple. Like it, it just very, it's, very simple, but effective. I, don't, like I just we, don't get it how like you can hike with all this food that's really heavy, consume it and leave your rubbish when even just taking a bag will be like one third of the weight. Yeah. Not even but, that hard. Well, yeah, I know obviously in very extreme environments, it can be quite, those people go out to the North Pole, South Pole, you know, it's a serious problem. Like, but now everyone takes their trash with them. I, I, I've seen everyone does it. I yeah. just don't know why Everest is not doing it as well now. And I mean, and most, I think it, most expeditions you do it now. It should be part of the, almost part of the, the, the record that, I mean, it hasn't counted until you actually brought everything that you brought. They also brought back home. It's yeah, it, it, yeah. it's very similar how some of these definitions, like unsupported, full solo, and, and there are a lot of better than than me. There, there are so many definitions of how you can break records and what yeah. you're allowed to do and what you are what you're not allowed to do. And I think that what, could what be I one loved, of those. Yeah. What I loved yeah. about the Ocean Road, the Atlantic Ocean Road, is that you know, you ha you had to take your rubbish with you and mm -hmm. show that you have your rubbish with you. Mm, so you, well, yeah. you couldn't throw it off and i love that that was a very good event and they're still doing it to this day i think you know we we have a lot of work to do as an adventure industry to really mm. like make this not just uh a one-off of you know it should be the common thing mm. you know it should be just all part of it and yeah i i really like that ecuador story if we can keep yeah. it simple then everyone would I think national parks in the UK, I'm always, I'm always doing national park walks. I live right near Dartmoor National Park. Anyone listening, mm. you might know where that is in southern UK. I'm walking there. I'm always finding trash, barbecues, uh, you know, bottles, these things. And it's, it's always in these hard-to-reach areas where people have gone to a hard-to-reach area, had a great time, and left it. Mm. And, it, and it. And I go there and I clean it up. And... I think it's just, you know, if you if you were to go to Dartmoor National Park, there should be like a fine or something for doing stuff like that because it's so damaging yeah. the, the environment. I mean, they found microplastics on the top of Everest. I, m I met a guy the other day called Alan who's now going to go to the South Pole and he's doing tests of microplastics on the South Pole. And I really hope he doesn't find microplastics on the South Pole. But, you know, there's a sign no there could be. There's a sign there could be. But if you find, you know, there's microplastic on the South Pole and on the top of Everest, I mean, what are we doing? We really need to, you know, get our act together. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm really hoping uh, Alan doesn't find it. I would not put my money on that one. But Yeah, no, I wouldn't either. It's unfortunate. Yeah, I mean, I, I really don't recall what I read and where I read it about microplastic, but maybe it was something like that, that just pretty much there's not a single you know, square meter on earth where you don't find microplastic anymore because it's just being distributed over the last couple of um, decades or, or centuries that it's just now all over the place. But uh, maybe yeah. there's I mean, maybe there's still some hope. Yeah, human lifestyle choice can make a difference, right? But yeah. Of course, businesses are too. And people say, oh, yeah, it's the business's fault. And I said, well, who runs the businesses? People. Yeah, as always. So it all goes back to people again. I have, well, actually three more questions that I would really like to ask. The first one is, obviously, you are one who always thinks of the next big adventure while you are training for your current adventure. So, of course, the question will be, what's next? Yeah, the, I guess my next big uh, adventure is um, 
millions of eco adventures with all these new people who are coming on they're my next ones because these are all bespoke as well so they're all mm. very small maybe you've discussed the micro adventure concept with people on this podcast Actually, before yeah. Not not to that extent that it's okay. uh, not worth talking about it a bit more. So e exactly, very very good yeah. point. So right now your focus shifted from big record breaking adventures to these micro adventures, which are yeah. small adventures often in front of your house. So absolutely, like yeah. maybe maybe put a few words words yeah. to that. Yeah. So micro adventures are you know things that are small. You know I mean they could even be half a day where you do this adventurous activity and you have fun for that that time, and they're not like. The things that you can incorporate in your day-to-day -day life. So if you're working that nine-to-five job, I, you know, having that great overnight sleep maybe in the, in this like hillside that you know nearby, and you went after after work, you went did a sleep up there, and then came back. Sneaky, no one knows, but you do, and you had that cool adventure experience for yourself. Like that's a micro adventure. It, mm. Alistair Humphreys was the the guys kind of termed it as micro adventure, mm. but the eco adventures themselves are you know one to two day experiences so they're kind of micro adventures but with that environmental responsibility and i'll be doing that all next year loads of different ones so that's kind of what i'm up to at the moment um, but I'd, i have plans for some other bigger stuff later but yeah i'm trying to roll out these eco adventures as much as possible because i feel like you know i've done a lot of great things and i think this might be my greatest thing if i can make this work well all fingers crossed and i think it's it's such a cool concept that that hopefully gains more and more popularity because then obviously more and more people can partake in it. You can have a job, you can do it on the weekend, you you find adventure all over the place and it just doesn't have to always be the Himalayas, which obviously is, you need kind of a month to do that and not everybody wants to commit to that, but committing for an evening or half a day, yeah. everybody can do that. So that's I, I really think, fantastic. I think we'll, we'll get to a place where we can all go to places like that without feeling slightly guilty right from an environment yeah. there will be you know zero emission transport soon and there will be ways where we can collect rubbish and take it back with us and stuff like that on those mountains but i think yeah. for the time being there isn't there isn't that at the moment and there there is a bit like for me i i do feel a bit guilty if i went to everest or something like this i would feel, mm. i would feel you know what i what can i do to to really make up for for the environmental damage i would do just to achieve this great feat for myself yeah. and um yes yeah, it's, it's a difficult question for right now yeah and it's quite painful on the bank account as well <laughs> <laughs> yeah hundred thousand or something or maybe more 200 yeah depending on how much you want to carry yourself right <laughs> yeah um, quickly goes yeah. up then obviously uh you are an inspiration to to many and so my other question would be who is your inspiration do you have a person do you have maybe anything in your life that really say okay that has been a true inspiration for me yeah i do i i really do have someone very close to me and do you know what it's it's changed my inspirations have changed but the one person you know today at this present point but i think wow you helped me so much it was my dad um and it was when he took me fishing he used to take me fishing at the age of 10 He was the first person who took me into wild, actual wild outdoor natural spaces in the UK, like a bit more rural. I, I, my outdoor spaces when I was in Luton was, you know, a park, hmm. fields, yeah, with rugby pitches and stuff. Outside of that, he would take me to actual rivers run by the National Trust and things like this in Devon. And those experiences allowed me to really 
you know, understand that, you know, nature is there, nature's incredible, and wow, is it beautiful. If I, if he, if he never took me to a place like that, I don't think I would be saying this about him, but it did sow the seed for a lot to come. Hmm. That makes a lot of sense. So what do you mean it has changed throughout the time? Yeah, well, it was realization, you know, why? Why did, why is nature being so, where did this all come from? Going back, mm. back, back. The first experiences with it was with him. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, you know, come to a circle. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It took a long Wonderful. time though. Yeah, 30, really, I'm, I'm, I'm nearly 30 years old now. I'm, it's taken a long time to get there, but yeah. Before it used to be, you know, Bear Grylls or David Attenborough, you know, those those people are really inspiring. They are really inspiring to me, but for someone who's actually influenced and inspired my life, I would say that early moment mm. was probably more powerful than I could have ever have imagined at that time. Yeah, that sounds very reflective and yeah, it's a wonder it's a wonderful thing. And we heard it quite quite often that I mean it doesn't come as a surprise that the mom or the dad or a brother is yeah. just very influential in in the path of how your life goes. So Yeah, it is it is, but I always thought it was always gonna be I'm inspired by the celebrity or yeah, I'm gonna exactly. go be, be like them, right? You know, yeah. or something like this. But actually, you know, I am my own person, I've done my own things, but I think it I I've attributed inspiration to action uh, in recent years, like the five five years and the, the people who are making those actions direct in my life are becoming more inspirational because my, my value has changed. My value purpose has changed. Yeah. What I saw as, you know, on media and things was very inspiring in my early years of doing adventures, seeing Bear Grylls do all these incredible things. It's amazing. Dave Ashman, places he's been and the, 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 what he talks about and from an environmental state, super yeah. special. But what was really close to home, what, made me think in the way I do from a very early age was actually my parents. So kudos to them and very, very pleased to say that. Yeah. And for everyone who's maybe raising kids or soon raising kids, a lot of power in that, in it's teaching different. adventures in a very small way, in a very easy way, right? Yeah. But it's like psychologists are always talking about how the first, you know, 15 years or 10 years of, of, of a child's upbringing dictates almost everything in the future. Mm. There's, there's psychologists that can predict from talking to you what your upbringing was like, which is amazing. They can, and then they, they know that, you know, if, should you have had this upbringing, you might be different. It's, it's especially, yeah, oh, absolutely. I, I'm still researching that as well. And anyone who has ever been to a therapist or a psychologist, they will know that first question you will be asked at some point is how was the relationship to your parents? That no matter what you do, if you are in any kind of need for, for mental support, that will be one of the first questions you will have to answer and think about because it's so impactful. Maybe so the sponsors as well. No, kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you, really. Thank you so much for, for your time and for your openness. And I'm, I'm really fascinated where this conversation went. And yeah, I think you have so much experience that you bring. And I hope it was fine for you and everybody who listened that we actually didn't dive too much into the adventures that you did, which were are fascinating as you played a little bit with those, or you mentioned that rowing across the Atlantic and of course swimming and a lot of endurance adventures. But I think it was really, really inspiring to hear you as a person and the struggles that you dealt with and the lessons that you've learned already and that you now try to apply them to a 
an even better future and being so cautious and careful about what you do. So really thank you so, so much for that time that you, that you've now spent in sharing some of those insights. Yeah, th thank you, Torben, today. It was really great. And I, I love to share the, the why or the person behind the adventures, because that's actually what's, I think, more inspiring about the adventures themselves. You know, these are done by people who can be just like you. That's all I have to a say. A bit more fit, <laughs> a, bit more, a bit more fit, I guess. The, the absolute last question, and this is one I, what I, I ask everyone, is if you were to go out and you could only bring one item or... If we put it a bit the other way around, if you have a special item that you always bring a gadget or something, what would that be? Well, right now, if I had to choose one specific item only that was for outdoors or just literally any time when I leave. For the outdoors, for your adventures, something that has been surprisingly useful maybe on, on your adventures. Surprisingly useful on all my adventures. Oh, that's a tough one. I think right now I would say, I would say the compass and that's not, that's not novel. It's not a novel thing at all, but I would say the compass always has been used. Always. It's something that if I don't know where I'm going, I don't go anywhere. I guess, you know, there's all this philosophical stuff. We could talk about the internal compass as well. And da, da, da. But I think the compass has been amazing. I would take it everywhere with me. I fully agree. Actually, I don't think anyone ever said the compass. Uh, I mean, some people said like the phone, but I really like the compass. And the, the funny thing is I'm very obsessed with having a compass, even when I'm in the city. And, and one of the tricks that I, I really like is when I leave the subway and there's so many exits, you know, you leave a big subway station and then you just don't, like you completely lost track of where you are on the street. And then you look at your compass and if you have just slightly a map of the city in front of you, you instantly know, okay, I have to cross that street. I have to go right. I have to go left. It is like in, in an open signal on your phone. <laughs> yeah. It's a, I mean, it, it looks a bit stupid, right? But and that's why I fully agree. A, a very simple compass, north, south, west, east. It's still incredibly useful. Oh yeah. Always, always. Oh, even in the city. I love that. I'm going to try it. Next yeah. time I'm in London, I come out of the tube, I find Oxford Circus a bit of a nightmare for me. So at that station specifically, I'll bring the compass for. That was Isaac, who has a really inspiring story of how transformative nature and the outdoors can be and how once you get your priorities straight, your life can improve significantly and really how one simple walk completely changes your life thank you so much for listening to this episode and if you like the show then please leave a review or thumbs up depending on where you're listening and feel free to reach out to us write us give comments and feedback maybe you have guests you want to hear thank you so much for listening today and i hope i see you next time